Amen. John 18 and verse 1, we'll go to verse 27. Again, please follow along as I read. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band, of, the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, the title this morning, Sanctified or Scattered, comes actually from a previous couple chapters in the Gospel of John. Jesus, in John 17, has confessed to the Father, for their sake, for the sake of his disciples, he says, I have sanctified myself, I've set myself apart for the mission that you've given me. Likewise, he says, of his disciples, that on this very night, they would all be scattered and go, each one to their own place. Sanctified or scattered. There's obviously a stark contrast between those two words and a starker contrast even between Jesus and his disciples and the trust that Jesus expresses in his heavenly father on this night and the fear that overcomes each and every one of the other disciples. If you got a bulletin this morning, you have an outline before you or a call from this passage that I'd like to focus on is to hold to the light of Christ in the darkness of this world. Straightforward, simple enough, I hope, but simple doesn't mean easy. On this night in John 18, as we see Jesus has spoken these words, it's referring back to the prayer that he prayed in the presence of his disciples before his heavenly Father. Again, we call that prayer the high priestly prayer, which is very ironic as he comes to meet the high priest as appointed not even by men nor by God, but by specifically the Roman government. But Jesus is closing off his time of prayer. He's closing off his time of teaching with his disciples. And now is the dark night of his soul. Now is the hour that he has been dreading, that we've been reading about now for months. The buildup has been, in one sense, really painful to watch, to know what is coming, and to, to kind of sense the fear that might have overcome the disciples and those around him who heard him speaking of it. And yet... Jesus is the only one who is in perfect control of the circumstances of his own death. He's the only one who's truly in control in this whole scene that we've just read. How many people are grasping for control? You see it in Judas. You see it in Peter. You see it in Annas, who's not even supposed to be the high priest, but his son-in-law is. Jesus alone, though, is the one who is sovereign all over all these things. Even in the midst of this setup, of this betrayal, we see Jesus' plan unfolding. John mentions this as we come to the first part of our passage this morning in verse 10. After um, Jesus, had, I'm sorry, after Peter has drawn a sword and struck it, I'm sorry, I'm in verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of. Those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus is protecting his own and laying his own life down in the midst of this dark night of the soul. The purpose of his death is very clear. In John chapter 10, he taught us in verse 15 that he lays his life down for his sheep. The benefit that is gained at the loss of the Savior is for the sheep, those who are to be saved. In verse 17 of the same chapter, he says he lays down his life and he will take it up again. It's fascinating to read any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and consider how the disciples have been told over and over about how this is going to happen. And they are still scattered. 
in the face of the darkest opposition, the light of Christ shone through his obedience to the Father. It's shown through his declaration of the truth. And it's shown through his love for his own. Did you catch this at the beginning where John points out the brook Kidron? This was a, a wadi. It was a seasonal river in one sense. Could be very dangerous in the rainy season, but during this time, there was really no danger, no fear of flooding, no fear of, of water damage in any way, shape, or form. But it is interesting because this is the brook that was crossed by David upon his betrayal of his own son taking his throne out from underneath him. There's no active physical danger to threaten Jesus and his disciples in this garden wherein he goes and has gone multiple times. Judas knew the place. And that was what the danger truly was, was that the one who would betray him knew exactly where to find him. Again, Jesus is in control. He's the one shining the light of truth and everything that he's expressed and explained to his disciples, are, all those things are coming true in this moment. See, he doesn't say, well, Judas knows exactly where to find me, so we're going to go somewhere else. We know that Jesus came to this earth, took on flesh and dwelt among us intentionally, but it seems that we take it too for granted that this was all God's perfect plan unfolding before the very eyes of even those who would seek to end the life of Christ. The danger seems real. The scattering of the disciples is understandable. But Jesus is sanctified. Jesus is the one who is set aside for this very task and has set himself aside for that task. In these first 11 verses, we see this awesome scene of the power of the word of Christ. And I've often, I hope you've noticed, um, I've often tried to pull us back to that beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the what? The word. I should say the who. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Excellent. And you see this in Jesus' communication with this detachment of soldiers. This could have been upwards of a thousand soldiers, people, marching into this little garden. And interestingly enough, at this moment, what we don't see is Jesus saying, hey, Andrew, why don't you go find out who's knocking on the door? I saw a bunch of lanterns and lights out there. I want you guys to go find out what's going on, and I'm going to try to find the back door out of here. Rather, he approaches them, Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? This is not the act of a coward trying to preserve himself. This is the act of a sacrifice. Somebody who knows what's going to happen and who seems even strangely to be in charge. When they ask Jesus of Nazareth is the name that they respond. And Jesus' words, I am he, this is that same um, Greek phrase of ego eimi, I am. Those I am statements, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the others. And here, it's in, it's in a simpler sense. He's not teaching at this very moment, but even his, the power of his self-identification is so great that it hurls upwards of potentially a thousand soldiers to the ground. His words, church, Self-identification is a big issue in today's world, isn't it? Many people would love to think that they could identify themselves however they would like and in whatever way, 
and that everyone should adhere to that. There is only one person who could so effectively identify themselves. And when he does, those who would come against him fall to the ground. And the thing that brings them back up is his question yet again. He asks again in verse 7, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he turns himself in. I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Do you see the preserving priority of Christ for his disciples? The disciples are terrified right now. They're going to be scattered. And yet they are preserved. We will see as these last chapters of John unfold the way that Jesus proves what he had said to his father that of those you have given me, I have not lost one. In this section at verse 11, we see um, just in Jesus' response to Peter's great zeal, picking up a sword. This fisherman probably has no sword training at all whatsoever in his life. Uh, commentators say he was either very good at using a sword or very bad at using a sword. There was no in-between. Either he said, I'm going to show them what I'm about, and I'm going to take off Malchus's ear to show how precise I could be, and he was really good for doing that, if that's his intention, or he was most likely very poor swordsman, Usually what you go for is more like the neck area, right? Not cutting off an ear. He's not going to get very far if there could be potentially a thousand soldiers and he's going to say, I'm going to take all your ears off. Peter looks very, very foolish in this moment. He looks zealous. He is zealous. He wants to take control of the situation, but there is only one I am who is in control of the situation. Jesus responds to him, put that sword away. The Gospel of Luke, the good doctor, reminds us that um, Jesus then picked up that ear and healed Malchus. But the words that he says to Peter are very essential to this passage. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? If Peter could have understood that the Father was giving this cup to his son, to Jesus, I doubt very much that he would have said, now's the time to draw the sword. Peter's very confused, doesn't know what to do. In verses 12 through 18, Jesus is arrested. He's put through an illegal proceeding in the middle of the night. Not allowed to do that according to the law. We also get Peter's first denial as he is struggling to follow Christ. The words of Jesus to him earlier in John 13, saying, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me after. Peter says, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I imagine Peter would have loved to remember those words more than the words that Jesus said after. You don't know your own heart. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster even crows. And that first denial stands in stark contrast to Peter's swordsmanship earlier. Peter stood outside the door in verse 16. The other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the servant girl. This is a young girl who kept watch at the door. She brought Peter in. The servant girl asks Peter, are you also not one of this man's disciples? And he answers in the negative as well. I am not. He's bold enough in the garden to take off the ear of a soldier. Crumbles at the questioning of a little girl. Do you see Peter crumbling? Can you recognize and identify yourself in that crumbling? Jesus is arrested He's led to Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Annas was the high priest, but Rome had deposed him from that and gave it to his son-in-law. 
A lot of people still considered Annas to be the one who's in charge, so that's part of why he was the first to interrogate Jesus. Poorly, of course. We see in verses 19 through 24, Jesus in being the light of truth, the light of the world, and, and saying, saying things here that just leave no reason for doubt. I've spoken openly to the world. I've taught in synagogues in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what, they, what I said. They know. See, part of the illegal transaction going on here is you're not supposed to interrogate the defendant. You're supposed to interrogate witnesses. What do the witnesses of Jesus do? They witness to all that he truly is. So they can't have that. They can't go back to John chapter 9 and find that man who was born blind and say, what do you have to say about him? They know what happens when they ask people who have encountered Jesus. They know what they're going to say. Even the man who knew barely anything about him, he says, look, he must be a prophet. He must be something great. He must be sent from God. They can't afford to interrogate witnesses. They have to keep the shroud of this dark night covered. Annas can't accomplish his goal, so he sends Jesus to Caiaphas. Not going to work out very well for him either. Verses 25 through 27, our last section. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself by the fire. He's trying to blend in with everybody else. He's taking care of himself. I imagine in this moment as he's standing here, he has no idea what his next move is going to be. The sword thing didn't work out. Jesus himself told him to stop that. So he's not going to march on the door and break in there and say, give me back my Messiah, give me back my rabbi. You can imagine the confusion in Peter's mind in this moment when he's questioned twice more and denies twice more even knowing Jesus. Those words echoing in his heart, of course, at the end when the rooster crows. Christ hadn't lost him, though Peter had drifted so far. So what is it? that draws Peter and even Judas, we might consider this morning, so far from the light of Christ into the darkness. And that in then brings us to our warning this morning, to beware the darkness of worldly warfare. You know, election day happened this past week. And I don't know, as, as we kind of go in through this week and as results are still coming in across the country and as, you know, if you voted, you voted for one person against another person, maybe you, maybe you were voting against somebody else more than voting for someone. But it's very easy for us on election day to kind of feel a little bit of the power in our own hands, right? Or maybe you read too much of the news and you feel like, I don't really know if there's a point in even doing this. Amen. <laughs> there is a point in it. Do we need to, like, side note here? You should really vote. It's a very good thing to do. Okay, Bree, you got that? Like, oh, okay, thank you. All right, I don't see your sticker, so I don't Election day can be a great day for us to feel a weight of responsibility, of God-given responsibility to do the right thing, and it can also be a day of really wondering if there's even a point. So we feel this not only in November, but we feel it all year round as we are functioning in this world and, and striving to live according to Christ and yet feeling the pull of, of desires of this life. And I think that Judas and Peter kind of give us two alternatives to this um, sanctified status of Jesus. The scattered disciple may look like a collapsing Christian. That's what Judas was, the collapsing Christian. It may not even really be fair to call him a Christian in any way, shape, or form, because Jesus calls him the son of perdition. 
He calls him the one that, again, as he said, I have not lost one of those whom you've given me except, except Judas, the collapsing Christian. And then you look over at Peter and you see the competing Christian. And Peter was competitive, if nothing else. He was ready to fight and, as he said, even lay down his life for his rabbi, for his teacher. And he gets rebuked for it. The disciples are scattered, in part fulfilling, if you're curious, Zechariah 13, verse 7. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is fulfilled in Jesus' actions this night and the actions done to him, truly. And just like Zechariah prophesied, which is a great other study for you to do in chapter 13 of Zechariah, we, like these disciples, face trials in what I would put air quotes around the absence of the shepherd. Because in one sense, at least from the viewpoint of the world, we are functioning in the absence of our shepherd. Can't see him right now. What do we know? Let's, let's, let's put truth in here immediately. Christ died. He rose from death. He ascends to heaven, saying he's leaving his disciples, but he's not fully leaving them because he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell among them. The presence of Christ is very much a real a reality for his disciples even today. But we face trials, and those trials seem great as we believe the lie that the shepherd is absent. Those trials can lead us as they led Judas and Peter into that ugly thing of betrayal. It's a shorter road than we might think. We'd like to call it this morning the path of worldly warfare. You see, Judas started off in every way that we could understand as, as much a disciple as the other 12. No one knew that Judas was going to be the betrayer. I think that's why John tells us over and over again, Judas, who betrayed him. That's not to remind you of basic Sunday school knowledge. I think that's an expression of the author saying, we couldn't believe this. Judas? The guy we trusted with the money? Betrayal is a short road. For Judas, the path of worldly warfare that led to betrayal was seeking his own advancement. He'd been with Jesus for three years, seeking not to glorify God in his discipleship under the rabbi, but rather to find his own advancement, to find some place for himself. We know that because the other, other gospel writers um, also confirm that Judas used to take money from the money bag. His interaction with Jesus was about what he could find for himself to advance his own life in this world. Peter, who ends up being a true disciple here, but is still in a moment of weakness and scattering because of the shepherds being struck, is seeking not his own advancement, but he's seeking his own preservation. That was the draw for him to say, I'm going to need a sword tonight. I'm going to need to draw my sword tonight. You know, like Peter, it's very easy for us to put a lot of effort into the cultural war that we so focus on, right? I mean, when was the last time you really went to a, your TV for the news or to the internet or wherever you go to get news that you didn't want to find out something about something that's really messed up in this world, right? I don't think we so often go, I'd really like to go just find some good news. I want to find something that's going on. The things that preoccupy us are the things in the world that are falling apart. 
We put a lot, of, a lot of effort into the culture war. We put a lot of effort into building up walls to preserving the, our way of life in a lot of ways. And I just wonder sometimes if we are, like Peter, using the wrong means, using a worldly type of warfare to bring about something that is otherworldly, to bring about the kingdom of God. See, Peter didn't start a prayer meeting when Jesus was taken away. He went to his sword. He draws his sword before a thousand troops but crumbles in front of a slave girl. Worldly warfare ends up being the only option for those who do not prioritize personal holiness. If your Christian life is more about making sure that you're not doing what all the rest of the world is doing more than doing what Christ is doing, you're engaging in worldly warfare. You're engaging the way Peter engaged, self-preservation. And one of the great things in this passage that we read is that Jesus is the one who preserves his people. So we need not say, I need to step out of the cultural circle I'm a part of so that I can preserve my faith. Jesus prayed in John 17, not that the Father would take us out of the world. He prayed for us in the world. And that is hard, right? Because we don't want to send our kids to certain places in this world. We, we're very cautious about what we see on our phones or what ends up on our TV or, or what happens in our neighborhoods. We're, we're very aware of the effect that sin and evil has, the darkness of the world, as it closes in around us. And unfortunately, we get so fixed on the darkness that we start acting like it, even in opposition to it. We engage in worldly warfare. Peter was zealous, but he missed the actual mission of Christ. In verse 11 again, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It is God's design that you live in this messed up, broken, falling apart world. It was God's design that Jesus be sent to dwell among us in it. We cannot let ourselves build our own monastic circle where we can protect ourselves with all the rights that we so enjoy and all the liberties and the freedoms and, and the pleasures and the comforts and just try to box ourselves in and lock the door once 10.30 happens because, boy, we don't know who else might come through the door. In the darkness of this world, being close to Jesus doesn't exempt us from the temptations of this world. They're our only way to conquer the temptations, but the temptations are still going to come. And that's by design. God designs us to be in here. Now, we might face the temptation of gathering wealth and just enjoying as much of this life as we can, because that's what Judas faced. We might also face the temptation of aggressively seeking success, because that's what Peter faced. These are two guys who spent three years with Jesus in person, learning from him. Peter became an apostle, but he had to overcome this success that he so longed for in a worldly sense. Would you think back to John chapter 12 with this? Our series then was called True Triumph, seeing how Jesus was truly going to triumph over the world. And in verse 25, he says this, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It is not to say that you should hate a good thing that God gave you, but Jesus is using this word of love and hate to create a very stark contrast 
between loving this world and being all about this world and loving the world that is to come and being all about that world. Being all about Christ versus being all about ourselves. That is where true triumph comes and we are unable to do that on our own. We are unable to embrace that on our own. We must come back to Christ in prayer, in his word. We must come back in fellowship with each other regularly so that we can see that Jesus himself has secured his victory. He's secured us by laying down his life in obedience to the Father. Though the shepherd was struck, he lost none who were his. Isaiah 53, 7 seems appropriate in this passage to look at. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Silent to his defense, but not to his identity. Verse 19, he says, look, I've spoken openly. Do the right thing. Ask the witnesses. Don't ask me. Ask the witnesses. He's not going to stand there and work on convincing all of them to let him go because he's there of his own accord. No one takes his life from him, but he lays it down freely. That is how he decided to secure his own victory and to share that with you this morning, church. Not by self-preservation, not by the advancement of his own seeking success in worldly kingdoms, but through sacrifice, through sanctification, through being set apart for what the Father had for him to do. Though Jesus was betrayed, he is the one who ultimately set up the setup. Judas thought that he had it all figured out. He was leading a, a detachment of soldiers into a little garden. He thought he had this all in the bag. We know it doesn't end up well for Judas. Nor does it end up well for any who would seek to just gain something personally from Christ and to leave the lordship of Christ for those hyper-radical or super-spiritual Christians. Jesus shows us an obedience and a sanctification to his Father's will. He was set apart for it. He was not set apart for his own will. He was set apart for the plan of his Father, which was to be your substitute. He is so sure of his victory, and so ought we be, because he has taken our defeat for us. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Where we are tempted to triumph over darkness through our own advancement or preservation, Christ overcame it by laying down his life. And if you are to follow Christ today, Christian, you need to have the same mind in you. Not to say, I'm going to make it through this life because I'm going to be the best, the smartest, the strongest, the safest. None of that but to relinquish all of those rights and that, those great things even that we exercised this past week in voting. All those things that we love, that we enjoy, they're not bad things, but if they were taken away, could you still follow Christ? Whether we fear what we could miss out on or we are bound by our own determination for success or advancement, we need to look to the sanctified one to redirect us to his gospel, to his truth, that in verse 11, that he would drink the cup that the Father has given him. In light of all of this, we ought to live according to the mind of, the, of Christ until the end. Today, what we need is to rest from that worldly warfare, whatever way we might be tempted to engage in the world and the way of the world. We need to follow Christ to the cross in all things. 
We know that though the Kidron was not raging for Jesus on this night, the Kidron of our lives is going to rage from season to season. But having the mind of Christ means that we can, like Jesus, be sanctified to the task that he has set before us. That is to proclaim the good news to those around us, not to shrink back from them, not to deny who we even are as being Christ's, being belonging to him. Where worldly warfare will scatter us, the mind of Christ will unite us and sanctify us to his purpose. So I've got three things to end you with this morning, to end with this morning for you. I'm going to end you. See, that's worldly warfare. I don't want to do that. All right, here's number one. Face whatever this world throws at you with the confidence of your Father in heaven's rule. That's a long sentence. Face what the world throws at you with the confidence that your Father in heaven rules all things. In another place, Jesus points out that he could have called down a legion of angels to take out that little detachment of soldiers that had been brought up against him. Whatever this world seems to throw at us, there's not going to be anything that God is going to be unprepared for or unable to meet our need in. Secondly, trust the plan of your Father in heaven because he will shine the light of Christ in the darkness of this world. He wants to shine it through you. Remember, Jesus is called the light of the world. In John chapter 1, he calls himself, I am the light of the world. But then he also also says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light, light of the world. And that shift to us being the light of the world is the fact that he's not in the world in the same way as he was as we read in John 18 but he is in us trust the plan of your father in heaven his plan is to shine the light of Christ into the darkness around you not to give you a way of escaping that darkness but to overcome that darkness lastly return often to the preserving power of Christ's victory return often to the preserving power of Christ's victory If you're not taking time in God's word to rest, to recoup, to remind yourself of the gospel, you're going to start to worry about where you stand with God. You're going to start to worry about your own preservation, your own advancement, your own growth. Coming back to God's word reminds us over and over again that there's nothing in our own power or in our own efforts that we can bring to the table to present before our Lord or to present as evidence of his work in our lives. We simply cling to Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Peter preached this to end with something good for Peter because he has a great outcome. I wanted to go to what happens in the end of the Gospel of John, but we'll save that for when we actually get there. In Acts chapter 2, this great sermon He says this of Jesus, his Savior, the one whom he denied three times. But then he proclaims to over 3,000 people about Jesus as being the one whom God raised up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He himself cannot be held by death. And there is no death, there is no darkness in your life that can hold you from his holding and preserving power. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Lord, you indeed are our rock and our redeemer. And this morning, may our hearts look to you and nowhere else for our own preservation, for our own growth, for your will in this life. Lord, if we should go home and have nothing to come home to, we have Christ and he is all we need. I thank you for such a confidence this morning.
We pray that you would draw us to your word, that you would draw us to the mission of shining the light in the darkness, not in order to condemn this world, because Jesus has already taught us the world's already condemned. We come with a message of life, of light, and of hope, a call to repent, to turn away from darkness, and to trust in the light. Lord, may we do so today and all our days as we cling to our rock and redeemer. We pray all this in his name. Amen.